0: Hey everybody, all week this week we're actually playing some of our favorite episodes from other podcast series that we have at the North Star. And if you didn't know it, The Breakdown is not our only podcast series. We have Woke at Work, Married to the Movement, The Momentum Advisor Show, America the Voiceless, and Sick Empire, which you're going to hear from today. You can search any podcast platform for all six of our podcast series. And on this episode of Sick Empire... We were at the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic when we started the first season of Sick Empire. Thousands of New York City's workers were left without a paycheck. Rent became a problem for so many people who had never had difficulty with their rent before the pandemic, and people without homes were left to suffer in silence. The second episode of the first season is entitled Homelessness and Rent Tension, and it investigates what Homelessness and Rent Tension Looks Like in New York City During a Pandemic. It's a brilliant, brilliant episode. I can't wait for you to hear it today. The, the, the Breakdown.
1: I don't know if I've ever told this story before. When I first moved to New York, I was homeless. I didn't move to New York homeless. I had a friend who I was staying with in Brooklyn. And one night, it had to be 2 o'clock in the morning. We had a falling out, and she kicked me out of the house. And I left. I didn't know anyone in New York. I didn't have any family in New York. And I can remember packing up my stuff in this big white duffel bag. And I remember sitting on the steps of the brownstone and Googling and calling every hotel in Brooklyn. And they were all booked. So about after an hour, I found a motel in Queens that had a room open. I called a cab to pick me up and take me there. And I had just landed a gig as a reservationist at Blue Hill in the West Village, but I didn't have a lot of money. I got to the motel and it was like out of a movie. The lights were really low. The ceilings were really low. And there were all types of characters that you find in the twilight hours lurking in the lobby. And I stayed there for a couple of nights at the rate that they had. And I couldn't afford a third night. I went to the front desk and told the woman the truth. I didn't have anywhere else to go. I had a job, but I was tapped out. And I needed to stay a couple more nights until I got a paycheck. And everything about the situation was embarrassing. Everything about the situation was unbelievable to me. When you are experiencing a trauma like homelessness, I don't think you can fully understand it until you are out of it. Because every hour, you're just trying to live. And I remember going out to drinks with a friend of mine. His name is Brandon, too. And I didn't want to tell anyone about this situation. But I slipped up. And... I mentioned that I couldn't sleep the night before. I mean, some of the sounds in the motel were unavoidable, dark, eerie. It'd keep anybody up. And I remember him looking at me and saying, what, are you staying in some shady motel? And I can't remember what I said back, but he read through me, and he ended up helping me out, get out of that motel, until I found a room to rent. And that story is sweet. That's a sweet homeless story. So imagine the people you see sleeping on the train. Imagine the people you see sleeping in the park. And as you listen to this episode, think about the steps that they had to go through to get there. Homelessness takes time. And during this pandemic... With people losing their jobs, with shelters being stressed out, and with no affordable housing, what's coming to New York City next may come faster than we think. Sick Empire. This is Brandon Janice, and you're listening to Sick
2: Empire, Sick
1: Empire Episode 2, Rent Tension and Homelessness. This is Sick Empire, and I'm your host, Brandon Janice. Today's episode is focused on homelessness and affordable housing in New York City during the coronavirus pandemic. You'll hear conversations between myself, New York City public advocate Jumani Williams, and the president and CEO of Wind Shelter, Christine Quinn. Homelessness impacts the city on the city's best day. Affordable housing is difficult to find in any borough. And with COVID-19 turning the economy of the city upside down, we have to wonder, what's coming next? Jumani Williams is serving his third term as a New York City Council member representing the 45th District. He's from Brooklyn, and he talks to me with no sugar-coated words of encouragement. Shit is bad. And Mr. Williams is here to help make real change for real people. We talk about affordable housing, the failed leadership in New York City, and how the homeless are being forgotten in the thick of it all. Super interested in hearing your experience with people who have never had to worry about public housing or worry about where they were going to get their next meal from before and how that has changed, how you've seen it change with your job with COVID-19.
3: We've definitely seen stories of and heard from people who are asking for all manner of assistance that they never, I believe, never thought they would have to ask for, from food assistance to housing assistance. Um, This pandemic has put things into sharp focus in a way they haven't before. And really, there were people who were, some of them, looking down on folks as we were pushing for people to be earning $15 an hour, uh, looking down on folks as we were asking for rent relief from people, as we were asking for debt relief from people, as we were pushing to make sure that public housing was adequately funded. Um, I, at this point in time, I think the feeling has shifted as more people, more community across the country, are now in a situation. And we've always said that most folks are probably a paycheck away from from being homeless.
1: You know, and with that, I do have to ask you this. Considering the race data that came out showing who was mostly affected, mostly dying from COVID-19, a lot of Black people, a lot of Latinx people, because it seems like the reopening of the states and people wanting to go back to the status quo, is happening a lot sooner than it should. And I can't help but think that it is because a lot of a lot of non-white people are being affected.
3: The virus itself does not discriminate. Our policies and our responses have discriminated. And so we've seen some communities being exponentially affected more than others. And that is Black and brown, that is immigrant, that is working class. Here in New York State, There was no leadership from the federal government, period. We didn't expect anything from that man. He's not intelligent at all, and he does not like Black and brown people.
1: I asked Jumaane about the leadership here in New York City, the epicenter of the coronavirus pandemic. Listen to what he had to say.
3: We saw what seemed like either deliberate or just completely ignorant responses that harmed the community. So here in New York State, We had a mayor and a governor. They both moved too slow. Their actions weren't bold enough, and they did not adapt to the information they were getting. The governor in particular, who was enjoying 87% approval rating, who was a national star, uh, especially in the absence of no other leadership, was terrible on this. Uh, And we have to be very honest about that. He was slow to act didn't want to call the shelter in place. In his words, he was scared. He didn't want to scare people. He called it pause. We never really had a clear shutdown in the state as much as people think that we did. And here's what they also did. They said, in New York City, you are going to telecommute. You want folks to stay at home. And so the people who could go to the Hamptons did, so much so that the rent increased. And the people who uh, lived in uh, the wealthier parts of Manhattan, stayed home, had their groceries delivered to them and their medicines delivered to them. But what they said to the rest of New York, who apparently were expendable, they, they told them you had to go to work. 75% of essential workers are black and brown. A majority of them are women. They said, you have to go out in the streets. You have to go to work. Uh, not only that, we're not going to equip you with any personal protective equipment. We have to leave that just for the doctors. And we're not going to test you. So we're not going to test you or your community. Uh, we're going to, As the New York Post, of all people, put out, two-thirds of the top 30 zip codes that had testing were in white, wealthier communities while people were dying in black and brown and had no testing at all. So those were deliberate things that were done not by Donald Trump, but by Democrats like Andrew Cuomo. And we have to be very, very clear about that. And what we have done is uh, got several elected officials across this (laughs) country— And I asked the Department of Justice to investigate all the actions of executives on the city, state, and, of course, the federal level uh, to investigate civil rights violations in response to COVID-19. What did we do to plan for it? Why are we now, New York State and New York City, the worst response by the numbers to coronavirus on planet Earth? And while that's happening, the governor is trying to cut Medicaid. And While that's happening, the mayor is trying to cut every single summer youth job that exists in the city. While that's happening, two homeless people have died on the trains in the past two weeks. While that's happening, we've asked the mayor to uh, use 30,000 of the available 100,000 hotel units to provide shelter and relieve stress on street homeless and shelters, and is yet to do that. As a matter of fact, he misinformed us and said he needed the federal government to get permission. It turns out he's had permission from the federal government for at least a month. Um, and so we are telling people to shelter in place who have no shelter. And we're telling people to wear masks who actually have no masks. And we have not provided a plan to system.
1: When we're talking about fighting for housing justice, right, do you have any type of tips or any ways that they can advocate for themselves, any type of resources, any way they can advocate for themselves when it comes to dealing with landlords and just overall rent tension at a time like this?
3: You know, we always tell folks to reach out to our office if we can provide assistance. And they can do that and call our number 212-669-7250. You can go to get help at advocate.nyc.gov. Have resources that are available there. I would recommend folks get in contact with their local elected officials, especially local nonprofits. We really have to fight this together. And so we're pushing for this rent cancellation. Uh, I am for pushing for mortgages to be waived for the next few months as well, maybe put on the back end. You you should be doing both of those together. But the fact that people are not going to be able to pay their rent is very real. And it's realer for people who didn't think this stuff affected them. And so once it was the other people, things were fine. But now, if it affects them, we have a problem.
1: So I call one of the bigger landlords in New York City, and um, I got him on the phone. I, I asked him straight up, like, what's up? What's going on with the rent? We haven't heard anything from any landlords. What's going on? One of the things that he said to me was that, New York City gets 50% of its income from property taxes. That's landlords paying property taxes, right? From rent that renters pay them. So his defense to canceling the rent and his defense to people screaming, cancel the rent, cancel the rent, was that if we do that, the city will not have 50% of its income. What is your response, as someone who works in affordable housing, as someone who works in housing Justice, what is your response to somebody who, who says that?
3: I do want to say I, at some point, had tenants as well. So I understand this. And I've always understood both sides. Everybody's going to have to share in the pain. We have to have equitable pain sharing. We cannot expect people to pay rent who don't have the money to pay rent. We then can't evict people because they didn't have the money to pay rent because they simply had a, uh, didn't have a job. What we need to, to do is do a reset. Right, We have to reset the economy, so I want to work with that property owner as well, especially if he's a responsible property owner, because there are property owners who have been collecting rents for years and not giving services to their community. they deserve no sympathy. their properties actually should be probably taken from them. But there are those who are responsible and we should work. We can't expect to collect all of the property taxes that we would have collected. Prior to COVID, we just can't. We also can't expect people to be evicted because we will have mass evictions in the city of New York. And in some communities, people who have been seeding to get in and move out the people who are there and moving people who are paying higher rents. We are not going to use this to completely gentrify uh, New York City and move all of the working class communities out. We're just not going to allow that to happen. So, what we need from a person like that is to sit down. And let's really figure out what's happening. We know that landlords, even with something called the Rent Guidelines Board in New York City, they factor in uh, money they're making. They, landlords, and particularly bigger owners, are guaranteed a certain amount of profit. So, what thing that they would never do is open up the books. So let's really take a look in there. I don't want people who are in business not to make money. Let's all look at the same numbers and let's see where we're at. But you can't keep crying foul when nobody else can look at the numbers but you, and all we see are people getting evicted uh, and homeless numbers increasing. That's not a conversation we're going to have. But we can't have people who've been out of work for three months be expected to pay rent, and if they can't pay rent, then they get evicted. That's not going to happen.
1: I asked Jamani to talk to me about homelessness in New York City and the inherent discrimination that is there. What is going to happen to low-income people who cannot afford three months of back rent. What is going to happen when more homeless people start to die off?
3: There's about 850 homeless New Yorkers who've tested positive and about 65 homeless New Yorkers who've lost their lives. And those are 65 people with faces and names and their individual human beings who have, I'm sure, plans uh, just like all of us. I want to make sure we continue to lift that up and you can't have a vibrant community without proper housing. It's hard to get sick and get well without steady housing. It's hard to go to school and learn. It is the it is the, the, the um, glue that holds communities and makes a community. And we have told this mayor that he's been failing on these two issues well before this. Now we see that failure come to fruition with a real human cost. So he has literally failed when it comes to address deeply affordable, income-targeted, safe, affordable housing, just failed. The governor, another failure when it comes to this. And now we're seeing it. And many times people confuse saying we want to do something about the homeless to mean we don't want to see homeless people. And those are two different things. Um, So you can't arrest your way out of homeless. You can't necessarily homeless shelter your way out of homeless. The answer to most homelessness is housing that the person could afford. We have people who worked for the city that were homeless. A quarter of the people who are homeless are are children. Um, Many of the people who are homeless are working people. Many of them, the majority of them, uh, have jobs and just can't afford a place to live. And so we have the wrong view of what homelessness means. Um, And we have to know that the answer to it is housing. We have to know that we can't build 80% of units that are market rate or luxury and give 10% that is so-called affordable, and that 10% is not even really affordable. We've been telling this um, administration of their failures, and they have refused to accept that, and now we see it. And homelessness does often mean for too many a life in death situation. Again, we've seen two homeless people die in uh, the train. A few months ago in Chinatown, four homeless people were murdered. They were just uh, sleeping on the street. And so this is a very real problem. Low-income people have been getting gentrified out of their homes, pushed out. And where are these folks going to live? COVID is just putting to an acute, sharp display the problems that we have been having. And there are ways out of it. Uh, but greed is a problem.
1: You know, I have to ask you, like, during a pandemic, how risky is it to critique the leadership?
3: It has to be done when a leadership is bad. And so in the absence of any leadership on a federal level, yeah, the, then Cuomo stepped in and shined. He is an awesome bureaucrat. And that's why uh, he's good at that part. But a bureaucrat is not what we need. But he's very good on camera. What we're not understanding is what's happening in between those things. The decisions he's making or not making have really, really been terrible. Governor Cuomo is a primary reason of why we are the worst corona response on the planet Earth, on why black and brown people are dying on the way they are. Governor Andrew Cuomo. But his approval rating is up. He has awesome press conferences. And from uh, far away, uh, it looks like he's providing some sort of leadership because it looks good on camera. And he says some words that keep people calm. But we said from the beginning, there's a human cost to his inaction, an and we're feeling it now. And it's my job as public advocate to critique our leadership. And here in New York City, in New York State, we have three cisgendered straight white men who didn't even have diverse people around them on these press conferences making terrible decisions that are resulting in a lot of Black and brown people in particular uh, losing their lives and being put into harm's way. That needs to be called out.
1: Now, I'll be right back after a quick word from my friends at the North Star.
2: It's the
3: Hey, what's up? I'm Micah, the social media manager at the North Star. So if you follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, thank you. It means a lot to us. All of the tweets, pictures, and article posts are usually done by me with the assistance of our creative director and editorial team. I take care of the North Star, The Breakdown, Married to the Movement, and other accounts that we'll be kicking off soon. Anything that is released on the site, the Instagram live broadcast that Sean and Ray do for Married to the Movement, And the breakdowns videos are examples of what I do, and I try to get them posted for you all to see as soon as possible. It's extremely important that we not only tell the stories that need to be told, but that we have maximum reach, and that's where social media comes in.
1: Next, we are going to hear a conversation between myself and Christine Quinn, the CEO and president of WIN, which stands for Women in Need. They are the largest provider of shelter and permanent housing in New York City. Prior to her work at Wynn, Christine served a long tenor on the New York City Council as chair of the City Council's Health Committee. And for eight years, she was the speaker of the City Council. So she knows the ropes, the ins and the outs. Listen to her describe the response she created called the Aftermath Plan, a five-point plan to aid New York City's homeless now, before it's too late.
4: Now, our plan is five points, but they kind of fall in three general areas. One, to fix the parts of the system that are broken or not COVID-responsive. Two, to respond specifically to the type of homelessness we're going to be seeing, which would mean rapid response, and then to recommit to affordable housing in a way that is accelerated and true for uh, low-income homeless people. Because in Mayor de Blasio's first version of his affordable housing plan, there wasn't one apartment that was affordable for somebody who was trying to leave Shelter, not one, so let me give you an example. We have uh, uh, as we said, three hundred and twenty five thousand households, a million people on the verge of homelessness once the moratorium ends. A lot of those people have lost their jobs, so a lot of what those people need immediately is uh, rapid is a voucher that will help them pay the back rent and stay in their apartment. We call it the stay-at-home voucher. And if what those people need is cash to pay the back rent, let's do it. Let's do it as a grant, not a loan, so it doesn't dig them further under. And then they cannot come into shelter. We also include in this a piece of legislation which we have had prior to COVID, a lot of support for a bill that would raise the city's general housing voucher to 100% of fair market rent. That would raise it, for the average person, a couple of hundred dollars. But right now, there are no neighborhoods in the city where the amount of the voucher equals the fair market rent. If you raise it to the fair market rent, you're talking, you know, 8, 10 neighborhoods, which makes a big difference. Um, One of the big things in our report also is when there are not enough rooms in what are called tier two shelters, those are the ones we run that have wraparound services, holistic services. When there are not enough room in those on a good day, the city just sends people to commercial hotels. There aren't, isn't security there. There are not real social services there. And actually about three and a half years ago, four years ago, a domestic violence survivor and her son were sent to a commercial hotel to a Holiday Inn in Staten Island. And the boyfriend found them there and killed them. So we need to stop that model in general. But right now, today, when we know this is coming, Once the moratorium ends, why don't we, the city of New York, lease as many uh, empty commercial hotels as we can and convert them to convert them to uh, tier two hotels? We have done this five times. Uh, It's worked effortlessly. And then... For those who do need to go into shelter, they will be able to go into true shelter, not these placements that have no services.
1: Now, as clear-cut and realistic as Christine's aftermath plan is, I ask her if she ever receives any pushback and what that pushback looks like.
4: When we've gone into neighborhoods to, um, to open shelters, we almost automatically, get a not-in-my-backyard no, 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 no response. It's out of fear. It's out of ignorance. It's out of, you know, what the papers have made homelessness look like. But my job, Wynne's job, is not to make people happy. Our job is to break the cycle of homelessness. What
1: is the responsibility on the landlords? in this plan to keep families in their homes?
4: Once the eviction moratorium ends, there is no legal requirement. Now, that's different than whether there should be a moral requirement, right? But we wrote the report in the confines of the law. There is no legal requirement for landlords to keep tenants in their homes if they can't pay back the money that they didn't pay in rent. Now, we're incredibly worried about that. And we think the result of that, plus the growing jobless rate, right, and the high unemployment, plus the number of New Yorkers who were housing insecure before COVID, which means they were spending 30% of their income or more on housing. You add that up, that's, a million people, three hundred and twenty-five thousand households that could be at risk uh, of homelessness when the moratorium is over. So something has to be done. Uh, there is no good planning, and there's no good organizing unless you have total transparency. Because you know what, most scenarios in the world, but certainly most scenarios in in issues where you're working in poverty. A lot of them are not Hollywood endings. If you create this picture out there that everything is okay in the end, in this amazing way that everybody gets a mansion at the end, it's simply not true. And you kind of set, set yourself up for failure because then that's what the public is looking for. You know, there is a reality to homelessness and all of the Diseases of poverty, of which homelessness is one, that are simply not pretty. You want people to understand what it's like for a six-year-old child in shelter or an expectant mom in shelter. Hopefully, if they understand that humanity, it'll crack their heart open, and then they'll be supporters of this issue and people experiencing homelessness.
1: Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. I mean, just with this whole situation with COVID-19 and its impact on the shelter, I mean, how are you dealing with this emotionally? Like, I see how you're dealing with it numbers wise, and it's brilliant work, but I-, I can only imagine that the emotional toll of working with the homeless is-, is very high, not during a pandemic, right? So, I mean, not only for you, right? I want to hear from you right now, but I-, I-, I, this conversation is so important to me because of the voices of you and people like you, people who are directors of homeless shelters, people who are directors of food banks and, and poor people are coming to them, maybe even for the first times in their
4: lives, needing help. That's an interesting point. There will be, as has been at food banks, people who will be at potential of entering the homeless system who have had no real interactions with governmental social services before right? Because there will be people who will end up on the verge of homelessness because they lost their job and because no one, and I don't say this lightly, but no one in America has any savings. On the issue of how staff is, is, is kind of holding up, we're very lucky at Wynn to have something called Win Academy, which is our trauma-informed care institute and also our self-care, staff care unit within Wynn. And Win Academy has responded amazingly, to the crisis at hand. Among other things, we are having three times a week a morning meditation. We have self-support, staff self-support groups three times a week. We are in pause here in New York and in other places in the country. And I think the pause has extended to people's grief. I think we've all felt like no funerals, no memorials. We've put that on pause. But once pause is over, I believe you're going to see a tsunami of of grief and emotions. And that's one of the things we're looking for right now at Wynn, is a a grief counselor or a trainer uh, in grief counseling to help prepare our staff.
1: I asked Christine if she can compare today to a time in her working history when the shelters had swelled in population. And she reminded me that less than 10 years ago, things were really bad.
4: Well, you know, after the the fiscal crisis of 2009, there were massive cuts by the city to uh, homeless services and other social service programs. One of the worst times, though, was there had been a voucher in place, a housing voucher called Advantage. And Mike Bloomberg, for a host of... Reasons he believed stopped the voucher. So you went from a Monday where people had a voucher to a Tuesday when the landlord got a letter that says, There's no, we have no more money. We're not paying these residents' rent. So basically, every single solitary one of those people who had an Advantage voucher got evicted, and ended up in shelter. So that is a period of time when the numbers just skyrocket.
1: The Advantage program she is talking about started in 2007 and ended in 2010. And now we are in a position where we have to depend on the city to get vouchers for people who have lost their jobs due to COVID-19. I can't say that I'm hopeful. Can you give me two scenarios? Can you give me the best case scenario? Sure. And can you give me the
4: worst case scenario? Well, the best case scenario is that the city sits down and negotiates with Wynn and other groups around the aftermath plan we put out. And am I wedded to exactly our proposals? A hundred percent not. But we need to have a conversation and a dialogue where we all commit to the reality that something needs to be done, that our present system will fail us and will take a homeless crisis to a homeless catastrophe.
1: Where do most of your frustrations lie?
4: There are big frustrations about how could possibly in the greatest city in the world, be so many people who are homeless? And how could there be so many people living so on the edge that this situation gives them really no option but to end up homeless in the shelter system? The smaller frustration, which is a big frustration, is getting people to look ahead. We are not condemning DHS. We are trying to be helpful and say, from our perch, things are going to get worse. So let's come together and fix them. There is always a defensiveness.
1: So can I ask you then, where do you think that that kind of tension and that apprehension to work together comes from when you're talking about public advocates and you're talking about government? Like, where is that tension coming from? Because it's not just with the homelessness, right? The crises. It's with almost every single, it's with policing, and it's with jobs and it's with climate change it's with everything there's almost like an us versus them when you are talking about the people and we're talking about government so from your
4: position i mean where is that tension coming from from my perspective as a former elected official one it's it's just there right so it's easier this is easier to get sucked into it than fight it right and once you realize you've been sucked into it you have to fight your way back out from it Historically, it's been that way for so long. We can recognize good things people have done, like the Department of Homeless Services. We said to them, "So many people have lost their job. The city had a work requirement; you had to be working to get a voucher." I disagree with that wholesale, but we were able to go to the city, and they they have have put a temporary halt on the requirement of having a job to qualify for a voucher. So that's a good step, you know what I mean? That's That was a positive thing. The city really did see that as uh, a, an important suggestion.
1: I asked Christine if she is fearful that COVID-19 will wipe away all of the work Wynn has done, and if she's concerned about having to start over with a whole new batch of New Yorkers who have found themselves homeless. Here's what she had to say.
4: I am worried about uh, kind of uh, a new group of New Yorkers experiencing homelessness uh, and ones who maybe have never been part of the social service system before. I'm worried about children, if they don't get a stay-at-home voucher, who will have to go into shelter. Typically, prior to COVID, people stayed in shelter 15 months. You know, so that's uh, 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 over a year, right? Think if you're little, you'll have spent a, a half or a third or a quarter of your life in shelter. That's not, that, that traumatizes children. The greatest indicator that you will be homeless is that you are a homeless child. You know, my other worry is, look, I, I, no one wants a homeless shelter in their neighborhood. I, I really do understand that. Even with the stay-at-home voucher, even with rapid rehousing, we are going to have more homeless people. So we are going to have to ask New Yorkers to bear more homeless shelters than they would want to bear. Now, everyone then says, well, the answer isn't shelter, it's affordable housing. 100% right. But we don't, affordable housing is simply not being built at the level where homeless people can actually afford it. It might be two years till we see an apartment. In those two years, people need to be served and be safe and have a room over their head and their children need to go to school. So it is a something big we're going to have to ask New Yorkers. But when we say we're all in this together, there's no uh, a parentheses that says we're all in this together. We're, we're, all of us who have housing are in this together. That's not what we say. And that can't be what we do. Brilliant.
1: And I get that 100%. And I don't think I've ever heard anyone say it cleaner. And I'm wondering, I'm wondering if there is anything that the people with privilege can actively do during this time to stop pretending. Like, we don't see the homelessness in the city. You know what I'm saying?
4: Oh, I do. I do. And I spend hours getting screamed at in Park Slope and Staten Island by a lot of people with a lot of privilege. And you know what? The first thing people of privilege, and, and I'm a, a white person, so I consider myself front line on that. The first thing we need to do, we need to stop immediately saying no to whatever it is. Right. We need to not show up to oppose social service facilities. We need to stop doing that. We need to stop thinking we are so special that we don't have to have a homeless shelter in our upper-income white neighborhood. We need to let that go. We need to, and this has been said a million times, walk in the shoes of uh, of other people. How would you feel if you had lost your job because of covid couldn't pay your rent and you and your child end up in a shelter and you read in the newspaper that people are protesting and screaming and carrying on. You feel down enough for that to happen. is just terrible. So we need to just stop doing that. And we need to understand that help is for everybody, not just for those people who have enough money. You know, one of the things that distresses me in in the work I do is that, you know, somehow you have to prove you're not bad to deserve care as a homeless person. You need to have proved you didn't do anything wrong. You know what? People make mistakes. Things happen. And when you have money, you can work your way around it. So this idea of the worthy homeless and the unworthy homeless is also something we have to let go of. So with all of that brilliant banter on a plan to fix the
1: devastating position New Yorkers find themselves in when they've lost their homes and end up on the streets, something is still missing. The conversations I had with two of the city's most vocal, most proactive, and most experienced advocates for the homeless and for affordable housing As thought-provoking as the conversations were, as compelling as the plans are, the real issue is that right now, homeless people in New York City are suffering, the most, from the pandemic. And to put it clear, since 1904, the New York City transit system has not stopped its overnight service, not even once. And on May 6th, the overnight subway service was disrupted to disinfect the stations and the passenger cars. Pre-COVID-19, the cleaning was only being done once every three days. So with that, to end the show, I want you to listen to the account of a man named Jamar who has worked as an MTA bus operator for five years. What he has to say about what he sees firsthand should wake us up. It's time to stop pretending that we don't see what the hell is going on. You love living in New York? You love living in Bushwick? You love living in Bed-Stuy? Love all of it. Not just the folks on your block.
2: On my route, uh, on the BX9, uh, it goes up into Yonkers, and the last stop, on the, the very last stop on the one train is 242nd Street. So I service that bus stop exactly like 1 o'clock, 1 a.m. Usually on a normal day or even before um, the pandemic and even in the early stages of the pandemic, it's usually quiet after about 10 o'clock, 10 p.m. That the first night, particular night, it was about, I would say, a community of people, about 30, 40 people at the bus stop. Um, And most of them were homeless. And... They change how um, we do our service, where um, I would say about 25% of the bus is blocked off to protect the bus operator, to give them that six-feet distance. So there's not a lot of space in the back. And at that time, there's not a lot of buses. So I have, I'm driving, I have, about 30, I have about 30 homeless people in the back of my bus. A lot of them do not know about the new policies. A lot of them were were upset because the train is their home at night. This is how they get their rest. This is how they recharge their batteries. And now, all of that, some of them are still trying to make it down to the shelter that's further down in the city. And a, lot, and a lot of them were upset. They were angry. They were bewildered. They don't know anything about the bus route. You know, sometimes it's a, it's, it's a fight to kind of get them off the bus because that's the only shelter they have and they 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 don't want to go outside they want to be out there several um, passengers who were homeless who didn't have access to face masks or any protective gear literally dig in the garbage and find used masks and protective gear to use to protect themselves a lot of times they're just they're just back there just trying to get a good night's sleep. And it's it's kinda of sad because at every stop you see communities of homeless people just trying to find somewhere to go at night.
1: Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Sick Empire. This podcast is produced and presented by the North Star. The North Star is funded entirely by our members. Every episode of Sick Empire comes out one week early to members of the North Star. If you'd like to listen now, you can become a member at thenorthstar.com. That's thenorthstar.com. You can also support Sick Empire by going to Apple Podcast, subscribing to Sick Empire, and leaving us your best review. Tell us what you love about the podcast on any other podcasting platform please subscribe and follow us. All of the music in this podcast is produced by the North Star's senior producer, Willis. Special thanks also goes to our guests and every staff member at the North Star. On next week's episode, we'll be listening to people who protest in the middle
3: of a pandemic.